In Philippians 3, uh, verses 15 through 21, Paul wraps up, and he speaks to this a couple different ideas here. And, and what he's going to kind of speak to is this idea of, of mentoring others. He's, he's, he's speaking about how he's, he wants to mentor others and disciple others, and, and how in turn we also ought to do that. That's kind of implied here in the text. And, and he wants, he, he's going to lay out some specifics uh, you know, for that and contrast the two different groups, those who walk with Christ and those who are enemies of the cross. Now, it's important that we, that, that we pay attention to what he's saying this morning because what he's wanting to communicate to us is the, if you call yourself a Christian, if you, if you think in any sort of way that you uh, are a Christian or you follow Christ, it's the type of, uh, of, of lifestyle, it's the type of uh, mindset that is, un, uh, that is completely um, active. You can't be a spectator. You know, in other areas of life, in other hobbies, if you're, if you're kind of getting into a business as a photographer, uh, as, as I uh, was in that industry for uh, a long time owning my own business and now managing another photography studio, when people would kind of join the business, you know, or, or join the industry, they would go out and they would buy a, a digital camera, you know, they have come down in price quite a bit and, you know, anybody basically now with a, with a blog and a camera can you know, become a photographer these days. You know, everything's super cheap, software is super cheap, and you, you can just have a turnkey business overnight. And, and, but there's so much more to becoming a photographer. There's so much more. You know, when, when uh, I began learning uh, about my camera, I was uh, interested in not just knowing about making it look how I wanted it, it to look, the photos, but I wanted to know why. And so I lived with my manual. I wanted to know my camera backwards and forwards. So like I had the manual and I was reading it everywhere I went. Anytime I had spare time, I was like, what does function, you know, custom function 31 do? What does that do? You know, I would learn it and I would get into it and I would test it and I would read it and be like, okay. And I would, you know, kind of quiz myself and remind myself. And I would go and ask other photographers who had been in the industry for a long time before me and learn from them and, and had people who would mentor me and had gone before and had been taught by great teachers. One, uh, one guy who, who uh, was teaching me, uh, he, was, he was kind of a mentor in a sense. He was... Uh, his mentor was the guy who printed Ansel Adams' photos. He was like this, you know, amazing uh, photographer or amazing printmaker who Ansel Adams would go out and he would take these amazing portraits of Yosemite and like, you know, all the famous landscapes that we see. And he would go out and do those. And then this man would, he would be the, the one who would do the darkroom work and he would do the, the printmaking for him. And in that, you know, from, from Ansel Adams to that printmaker, uh, to my friend was kind of the, the one of the first touchstones of where the phrase no bad work goes out came from because you know you would just think like any Ansel Adam print you could get your hands on was probably good enough but for that guy if it would come you know and it wasn't perfect he would just tear it in half and be like no one's going to get that one like if it's not immaculate no one's getting it no no like oh that was like decent like maybe we'll just sell that one on discount so that has kind of been passed down from, you know, Ansel Adams to this printmaker guy to my friend to me, 
and now, you know, it's my family and we use it all the time. No bad work goes out. And so it was this hands-on process of learning and mentorship. But on the other side of that business, there's this kind of uh, phrase that, uh, you know, Anybody who is a serious photographer, and if you've lived with your manual, you, you know, you kind of apply it to these other people. And the phrase is, uh, you know, for these people who are joining the business, their idea is to fake it till you make it. That's what, you know, it's just like, just fake it. Just pretend like you know what you're doing, you know, and just don't let anybody know that you don't. You fake it till you make it. You, you keep going. You keep uh, processing your business. But the only problem is you never learn. You never, you never move past it. You never create vulnerabilities with everybody. And you never grow as a photographer because you don't let anybody know that you actually don't know what you're doing. And so Paul this morning will tell us that the Christian life, the, the walk of a believer is not one where you can fake it till you make it. You can't, you can't pretend like you know what you're doing. You can't approach the Christian walk as someone who's like, yeah, I kind of, I, I'm, I call myself a Christian. I'm just going to pretend like I'm a Christian. He says, if you do that, you're never going to grow and you're never going to develop into uh, the, the mature believer that you're supposed to be. Now, he starts off here uh, speaking of two different groups and how he wants to mentor others. He's going to contrast two groups, those who have the mind of Christ, those who walk with Jesus, those who have the mind of Christ. He's been speaking to us about that uh, up until this point in, in chapters 1 uh, through the first portion of chapter 3. And he's going to contrast those with uh, those people who are enemies of the cross. And so he speaks of these two groups, and they have two end results. One, we'll see, is destruction, and the other is resurrection and glorification. So if you're faking it till you make it, your end will be destruction, Paul will tell us. But if you are joining in and you're being mentored by others, if you're making yourself available to others, then your end will be resurrection and glorification. And so he starts off in verse 15, let's read together, uh, let those of us who are mature think this way. So Paul starts off with this phrase, let those of us who are mature. Now, what does he mean by those of us who are mature? In some of your Bibles, it might say perfect, but what he, he, he's meaning here is mature. He doesn't actually mean, you know, you're perfect, you don't do anything wrong, but you have grown, you've walked with the Lord for a while. Now, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. What does he mean? Well, when he speaks of maturity, Paul has a view of, he's saying that you have Paul's view of things. You have his idea, his attitude. You adopt his way of thinking. Now, he has told us his way of thinking uh, in, in the beginning chapters of the book of Philippians. You know, he tells us that we ought to consider others more significant than ourselves, that we ought to, uh, you know, serve and love others faithfully as Christ has uh, loved us faithfully. He tells us that we are partners in the gospel. We tell, he tells us that his mindset is for the unity of the church. He tells us that his mindset is that he, will, he gladly gives up all things for the sake of knowing Jesus. And so he's saying that's what maturity looks like. Those who manifest that mindset, those who you can see that mindset in their life, those people who have purposed, and maybe you're not fully developed in that mindset, but your, your singular goal, your ambition is to know Jesus. And your goal is to, to help other people know Jesus. Your, your ambition is to see his kingdom furthered. And so Paul says, if, 
let those of us who are mature think this way. And he's, he's purposefully calling us back to that earlier exhortation in 2 verse 5, where he says, have this mind among yourself. You know, he's, he's, par- he's speaking these words or these sentences in, in parallel. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And he's calling us back to, to uh, chapter 2 verse 5, where he says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I also want you to note here, that Paul includes himself in this group, okay? He says, in, he says there in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul includes himself in this group. He's calling for unity of mind in the community in the same way that he did earlier in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, guys, this is a, a group project. This, is, this isn't just one person uh, you know, deciding that they're going to do what they want to do, but rather deciding that what they want to do is for, uh, serve Christ for the good of the community. They're thinking of others, having this singular mindset of uh, knowing and enjoying Jesus together. Now, the other point I want you to see here, in including himself here, is that he's, he's highlighting that because earlier he's just spoken of that he presses towards the goal, right? That, that's, what he, that's what he says here in, uh, in verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we, we said last week that Paul likens that to a race, you know, just like the, the kind of the half marathon that's happening today in Berkeley. In, in that race, everyone's kind of running together. And we talked about the runner's tips last week about how, you know, in a race, you're running together. In a distance race, it's especially important to run with a, a pack or a buddy because they keep you on pace and they encourage you and you, you trade off helping each other in that race. And so Paul here is saying the, the reason that there's that we should have us be mature rather than just these singular individuals who are operating within the church, is because the race that we run, it's not an individualistic, competitive attitude that you would normally have when you're running like a sprint. You know, it's not like 100-meter dash, like, you know, it's over in nine seconds, and like, there's, you know, first, second, and third place. This is just like, you know, anybody who starts a marathon, if you just finish, it's like, good, congratulations. Like, you did way more work than anybody that I know has ever done. You know, in terms of running. And so he says here, when we do that, when we run this race together, we're there to encourage one another. It's not for you to just outrun everybody else and be like, that sucks that you're lame and that you're slow. Like, I'm just going to get out of here. I'm going to get to the front of the pack and like, we'll see you at the end. But we're going together. And so he has highlighted that for us to remind us that the point is not just... uh, not just that we should have this maturity of mind, but we should have it together. It should be manifested together within the community. Now, he finishes uh, his point there in verse uh, 15 by saying, if, anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So Paul recognizes that there's going to be some differences in points uh, here, even when members of the community have a sincere desire to love Jesus. Okay, he, he recognizes that there's going to be some differences of opinion and ways to accomplish this when people still love Jesus. Now, he's not demanding total uniformity. He's not saying, like, that's it. Like, if you don't believe me right here and right now, like, you're not a part of our, uh, uh, you're not walking faithfully. 
He's not drawing a, a, a line in the sand and saying, like, if you, th- this is your one moment, and if you're not going to get on board right now, then you're out. He doesn't coerce the Philippians to agree with him on, uh, on every point here. But what he uh, is communicating is that the Lord will finish the work that he began. Now, I want you to see here, he leaves room for people to think other, uh, think other things, to have other opinions. But his opinion is the correct opinion. His, his thought here is the correct thought. His message that he's communicating is the correct uh, thing that he wants them to understand, the correct point. He leaves room for others with different mindsets, but he trusts that God is going to to reveal to them that their point of view is lacking, that it falls short of, uh, of the command for godly community. And, and that's what he communicates here. And, and this lines up with his message, um, you know, overall in what he's spoken to us in uh, the book of Philippians. In uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. So he's, he's saying, you know, even though I see that there's some lack in you, I know that God's going to be faithful to accomplish that work within you. I don't have to, like, you know, get you guys all in a room and berate you and yell at you. The Lord will, you know, you're hearing the doctrine, you know what you're supposed to be doing, and I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and to draw you to that. He also uh, emphasizes that it's the Lord's work to do that in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Having that desire to participate in the work of the Spirit here, Paul highlights that it's, it's God's work that draws us into that. And so he says, if you think something otherwise, it's okay for now. You know, I'm going to give you guys room to do that. You can think something different. You're still a part of the, the body of Christ, uh, you know, and God will work on you in his time, and he's going to bring you to uh, that conclusion when he wants to do it. So uh, he, he communicates that, and then he comes down in verse 16, and he emphasizes, uh, he, he kind of gives us a, a mile marker, a benchmark for us to look back to. He says in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul says, I'm going to give you freedom. I'm going to give you the ability to develop your own mindset regarding these things. But we have set some benchmarks so far. We have, we do have some foundational things that we're working from. We, you know, so you can't just start over with whatever you think. We already have agreement on some things, and so those are the things that we're going to hold true to. He, he wants them to, to understand that you've got to stay in line with, with the standard that has already been set by the progress that the Lord has brought you to. And so he says, guys, we've made some real progress together. You have the freedom to, to develop this thought as the Lord works it in you. But up until this point, we've, we've made some real progress together. And he doesn't want them uh, to, to lapse on the past work that the Lord has done in them, but rather wants to use that as a springboard uh, forward into uh, developing this future mindset. He, so he, he's calling them not to regress. He's saying, stand upon those things that you already have committed to, that you already know, and then move from there. Live up to what God has already done in you and through you. Use those things to push you forward. Now, he speaks of things that they've already attained so far, right? 
And, and so uh, we want to kind of take a second and look at, uh, get the Philippians' progress report. You know, did they, uh, did they achieve in the quarter that they were supposed to achieve it in, what they uh, were, uh, you know, called to? And so here's their, their quick progress report that we have through the book of Philippians. These are the things that they can't slip back beyond, but things that they've already worked uh, from. Uh, they have already obtained progress in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, their partnership in the gospel. So they're already partners in the gospel. Paul is calling them, don't lapse back in that. You have to work from a partnership in the gospel, this, this uh, intention, this gospel intention that you have developed to not only um, support you know, in prayer, but also financially you've come alongside and supported him in prayer, or I mean, in, in uh, with their money. In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, they've obtained already progress in their common sharing in the Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 10, they've obtained progress in their participation in his sufferings. So Paul, he's, he's just going through and giving them a couple things, like here's the things that you guys have already progressed and you guys are, have already moved beyond where you were previously. So don't lapse beyond these things. Work from these things into the future. And so Paul highlights these things for them because he's concerned that the progress of the community is going to be destroyed by selfish ambition. Remember, that's what he's, he's spoken to us in uh, chapter 1, verse 17. He says, the, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in prison. So Paul's warning them that they might not slip into this place of selfish ambition. Now, we said that ambition is okay, but you've got to have the right type of ambition. It's, it's fine to have uh, desires, but they have to be submitted to Christ to see if that's how he's going to work in you and through you. It's, you know, it's not just a free-for-all, do whatever you want, but rather develop your ideas, and submit them to the Lord. Now he goes on in verse 17 to speak a little bit more about this idea of uh, you know, mentoring the Philippian church. And he says, you guys want to know what a, what a mature Christian looks like? I'll give you a couple examples. So he says in verse uh, 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the first thing he tells them, if you want to see what a mature Christian looks like, number one, imitate me. Number two, watch others whose lives manifest actions born of the mind of Christ. So he, he says, look for others in your midst who take on these things, who take on that mindset of Christ, who made himself uh, nothing, who put off all of the things that would give him an advantage and took the form of a servant and was obedient. Look for those people who do that amongst you and watch them. And then you will learn what, what it looks like. Paul tells us, imitate me. Brothers, join in imitating me. It's interesting that he says that because it's much like uh, what I was describing to you guys earlier with the photographers, you know, that in, in the industry, the way that it develops. There are some who try to fake it till you make it, 
They kind of go that route. They're, you know, they kind of blog stalk everybody or follow people on Twitter. And you're like, oh, yeah, it seems like that's what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. They're watching from afar. But then there are also those who go deeper. They develop mentorship relationships. They develop these relationships where they go and they meet with a photographer. They go out, they develop shoots, and they're, they're working on their craft side by side. And they're like, what settings do you have? Well, let's see what you have. Okay, I have these. Let's shoot it again. All right. And reviewing work together. They're sharing uh, you know, knowledge with one another. They're sharing tips and techniques They're developing a relationship there, not only uh, in the point of technical skill, but when you develop relationships with other people within that field, you're also developing relationships where you trust that other person and then you want to send them work. You know, you're like, oh, I want to, you know, I know that you're going to serve this person well, so I'm going to, this person's coming to me and I'm already booked. I'm going to send them over to you because I know that you're going to take good care of them like I would. So Paul says, imitate me. You know, uh, he doesn't just say, watch me. He doesn't, Paul doesn't say, for me, just watch me. Watch what I do. He says, you need to do what I do. There needs to be action behind what I do. He's setting himself up as the prime example to watch. He's saying, if, if I want you to watch what I do, and then I want you to execute it. It's one thing to watch and to have, have the book knowledge but it's another thing to have the, the, the actual um, knowledge or the experiential knowledge. The, uh, um, last weekend, uh, we went up to a, a birthday party um, for my boss's son. And, you know, we went up there uh, to ice skating. And so on this outdoor rink. And um, I grew up skating, so I'm fine. But my kids, they've only been like, you know, three or four times. And so every time we go... You know, it's, it's not enough um, for me to put them out there and get out there on the ice and then uh, stand there with them and be like, okay, I'm going to go around a couple times, watch what I do. All right, you got it. You know, you're on your own. Get out there. You know, like I just get out there and get my like speed skating on and go fast around and stretch my legs a little bit. And then I'm like, all right, that's it. That's all there is to it. Get out there. You got it. No, that's not what happens. What happens usually is like I have to get out there and then stand with them. And, you know, I'm holding Caden's hand and we're walking along the boards. And I'm like, all right, I'm just stomping my foot at an angle. So why don't you try that? Watch what I'm doing. And I'm walking her through it. Stomp your foot, you know, at this angle. And you're kind of walking, you know, stomping your feet together along the ice and just keep your hands out. I'm kind of coaching her through it. Okay, watch what I do now. Now we're going to do a little bit of this. And I'm walking her through it each step of the way. And so those sorts of things are things that have to be, uh, you know, you have to imitate it. It's not enough to just watch. You, you, you have a coach, someone who's going to disciple you and mentor you. And then, uh, you know, in the process as you learn some of the fundamentals and you learn the basics of what you're supposed to be doing, then you look at other people and you're like, oh, okay, I kind of see what they're doing. They have maybe a different style or a different way that they go about it. Once you've kind of maybe got past the very, very beginning stages, you have a little bit more freedom to to say, okay, I'm going to tweak this a little bit. I see how they're approaching this. You're watching other people and observing. And you incorporate those things into the things that you already know. 
And so that's what Paul's telling us here. So when he calls the Philippians to imitate him, uh, in verse 17, he's urging them to join with him in, in his journey to know Christ. He's like, my greatest desire is to know Jesus. That's all I want. That's the only gain, the only thing that I desire. In this chapter, he's already emphasized, you know, heavily about how his, uh, his past gains, his, uh, his pedigree, his heritage, his upbringing, he's emphasized already so much how those things, which would appear to be things that would make him important in the world, those things have really become losses for the sake of Christ. He has said that he counts all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He, he's willing to put, put everything out of uh, view for the sake of gaining Christ. And so Paul's saying, if you want to imitate me, it means having the same attitude of mind that I have, and the attitude of mind that I have is the attitude and the mindset that Christ had when he faced uh, you know, coming here in his incarnation, his suffering, his death. Um, those are, that's the mindset that he had. So imitating uh, Paul really means imitating Jesus. He says, if you, need to, if you guys are going to imitate me, you need to have this same mindset. And then he says uh, in, in verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's already explained to us uh, in the book of Philippians how Timothy and Epaphroditus, those two men who he's sending back, they both kind of represent the type of people that Paul has in mind here. They are examples of uh, that mindset, that faithfulness. And so he gives, uh, he gives them as examples to the church. But I also want you guys to understand here, Paul, Paul's desire for the Philippians and for us is not simply to read more about, you know, these uh, Christ-like examples. You know, because in our day and age, it's like, oh, I want to learn about people who are more mature in the faith. So, like, I'm going to go to, you know, the bookstore. I'm going to pick up some biographies about, you know, dead guys from the 14th and 15th century, and I'm going to read about, like, all these crazy things that they went through because, like, they were walking with the Lord, and they were great, and that's awesome. You learn a lot from biographies, but what Paul is getting at is being relationships. He's calling us not to, to read about, but to, uh, to watch those who walk with Christ, but to watch them as you work side by side with them. As you're near them, as you learn from them, he's calling them into personal relationships with, with mentors who model the way to walk with Christ. And so that's what he's getting at here. Imitate me and then be near somebody else who has demonstrated faithfulness in a mature mindset. Who, who demonstrates the love of Christ in their actions and their thoughts and the way that they communicate. That's the type of person that you want to develop a relationship with and give your time to them and, and spend time with them so that way you can learn. And then in time, as you grow and mature, you're going to have to find other people as you develop that mindset who are going to come and find you. And they're going to be like, oh, that person really develops, you know, has that mindset of Christ and that, that correct attitude of mind. I'm going to, I want to go learn from them. Now, Paul contrasts those who walk 
in the way that Paul does with this mindset of in the attitude of Christ with those who walk as enemies of the cross. And he lays out kind of two options here for us as he transitions into this next section. And what he's kind of putting before us is two choices, two different ways to live. You know, there's a, there's a Christ-centered life or there's a self-centered life. Those are the two options that, that Paul contrasts before us this morning. The self-centered life, it sounds fun because it's filled with yourself and we really like ourselves, right? I mean, there's nothing better than like ourselves. We make ourselves real happy when we give ourselves what we really uh, want. But when we give in to that, it's simultaneously, uh, you know, it's unfulfilling. You're like, I'm doing everything that I want to do, but I don't have what I want. I feel empty still. And so the more that you try to make yourself happy, the more that you center upon yourself, the more you find yourself unfulfilled. You know, we know this to be true, not only just from personal knowledge, personal experience, but I mean, like you look at, uh, you know, the last 50 years, 100 years worth of like tabloids and like celebrity, you know, reports and the paparazzi. I mean, you would think if anybody had like a rad group of friends who didn't have any worries about money or bills, uh, who could travel whenever they wanted to, to like exotic locations, who didn't really have any problems, who could, in a sense that they could buy whatever they wanted, if there was, you know, any desire that they wanted, they'd be like, oh yeah, I got, I make that in one minute, I can go buy that in a second. If there was any group of, of, of people who, who had money, time, talent, friends, fans, people who would just do like the weirdest, dumbest stuff for them just because like they were famous. It, it, I mean, you would think that that group of people would be fulfilled. It'd be like not a care in the world. But yet we see, you know, time and time again that the reports of unfulfillment, you know, people sharing that like it's not what I thought it was going to be. We see people who have no hope in life because they're like, I got to the top and there's nothing there. And they end up, you know, uh, committing suicide because it's like, I have everything that I could have ever wanted and it's nothing. Because when you try to fulfill yourself with yourself and give in to your desires, they're empty. It, you'll keep filling, you'll keep filling, you'll keep filling, you'll keep pursuing, keep pursuing, and it's for nothing. Now Paul says, you know, th there's a better way. It's when we walk with Christ, when we uh, center our life upon him, that we can find joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, when things are difficult, somehow we have a peace that passes all understanding. That's something that only Jesus gives. Now, verse 18, he goes on to explain uh, this mindset, those who are enemies of the cross. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul says, he, these are people that I've spoken to you of often. You know, he, he's speaking of these enemies of, cro of the cross who present an alluring and harmful alternative uh, to th the way of the cross. And it, it makes sense because, like I said, you know, it's nice to serve yourself to give in to like whatever you want, your own whims and your own desires. That seems easy. 
when other people are struggling and when you're in the middle of struggling and people are seems like they're getting what they want, you know, it's very alluring to be like, oh, I should just do that. You know, I should just, it seems like it's working for them. I should give in to that. But Paul says here that these people who do that, they're enemies of the cross. Now, he focuses on the way that these people walk. Paul isn't simply speaking of people who are persecutors of the cross or who are, um, when we talk about enemies of the cross, he's not talking about people who are not Christians. He's not saying like, these people, uh, you know, they, they don't, they hate Jesus, they hate Christians, they hate church. He's not talking about that. He's talking here uh, about people who don't deny the cross or the importance of the cross, but people who are diverging from the, from the way of the cross. And we know that Jesus tells us uh, uh, in Mark 8, or maybe it's Mark 9, but he tells us you know, that if we want to go the way of the cross, that we have to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow him. So we have to, we have to, if we want to follow him, we have to take part in all the things that are a part of following him. And for Christ, it was humbling, it was self-sacrificial, it was obedience. Not necess- I mean, no one really is wanting to go to their death, but Christ went out of obedience and love for us. So he says, if you want to follow me, if you want to go the way of the cross... You have to go this way. And if you say that you're going to go the way of the cross, but then you're going another way, you're communicating to others that the way of the cross is really do what you want. Give in to what you want. And so these people here, they're, they're categorized as enemies of the cross. The way that they live is antithetical to the cross. And Paul, he's heartbroken over them. This is what he says. He says, I'm telling you this even with tears. He's literally weeping over their decision. He's compassionate. He has this heart of Christ. Now, I can tell you as a pastor, this is a feeling that I can sympathize with. Because you, I know the faithfulness of God and I know how he wants to like bless everybody and and bless people within the church and you know it's it's you can just see how close people are to like submitting and and letting the lord just you know guide them and direct them and and lead them but yet seeing the choices that they will fall back into and, and praying for people and agonizing over you know Okay, Lord, like grab a hold of them, capture their heart, put them on the path, you know, to, to bless them and to push them forward in their walk with you, to know you and enjoy you. It's, it's difficult. I know the, the feeling that Paul has to have this, this uh, anguish over those who, you know, are kind of teetering that fence. And so he, he is deeply compassionate towards them. He's deeply burdened for them. And so Paul goes on, he, he gives us a description of what it looks like to be an enemy of the cross. Look at verse 19. He says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
So three things characterize those who are not walking the path of the cross. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. They deliberately refuse to walk the path of the cross, and they've separated themselves from salvation in, the, in Christ, in his work upon the cross. They're, they're saying that there's a, this is a different way, a better way, another way, where you can give in. Now, he, he gives us three ways that they give in, having to do with appetite, having to do with uh, pride, in mindset. The first thing he says is their God is their belly. Now, normally we would obviously think like that means that like they eat whatever they want, right? Their God is their belly. Uh, they're, they're just like these massive gluttons. And in a sense, that's what he's communicating to us. But he's referring to, uh, the, the word that he uses refers to the seat of inward life, of feelings, of desires, so what he's saying here is, when he says that their God is their belly, he's communicating that their God is their inward feelings, their inward desires, the things that they actually want, their appetite, it's not, and, and it can be manifested in food. But he says that their God, their, their, um, their focus is upon their own desires, what, doing whatever they want to do. In Romans 16, Paul describes people who are not serving the Lord Christ, but have their own appetites. In, uh, in Romans 16, verse 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, he defines uh, some people here, to watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught to uh, taught. Avoid them. So these people... Who, who act this way, they, they cause division, they create obstacles. Uh, verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. There's an outward appearance, but they're serving themselves. They're among us, but their attitude is not towards submission to Christ, but rather doing what they want to do. These people are controlled by their desires. They don't demonstrate self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Self-control is the fruit of the, uh, the Spirit, but they're enslaved to their God. Their God is their belly, their appetites, their desires. They're serving uh, that God. Uh, the second thing he tells us, the problem here is uh, pride. They glory in their shame. These people, uh, they take pride in their shame. They boast and they brag about their indulgence of their desires. It's not just that they have the des these desires, but they're just like Instagramming them like crazy, right? They're giving into these things that they shouldn't be giving into. They're exalting these things above Christ. And then they're going and they're bragging about it. You know, it's like when they get to Instagram, they, they hit all the social media buttons. I'm posting it to every social network possible. Bam, getting it out there, trying to get as many likes as possible. They're bragging and boasting in things that are contrary to the cross of Christ. They're glorying in their shame. Something that they should, they should be uh, concerned about, they actually think it's a good thing. And they're, they're uh, excited about it. They're boasting in their liberties. Now, the last thing, and the reason that these people are enslaved to their desires, 
and that they boast about their shameful acts is that their mind is set on earthly things. So the reason that they invest in uh, their sinful desires, their appetites, their God is their belly, the reason that uh, they glory in their shame is because their mindset is incorrect. It's set on earthly things, uh, Paul tells us. And Paul's one goal for the community is what? Be like-minded of one mind. And he's not talking about mindset of earthly things, but uh, Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Have this one mind, the mind of Christ. So his one goal is to have unity of mind, the mind of Christ, and these people have a worldly mindset, an earthly mindset. Their focus is upon earthly things. And now he tells us the result. Instead of finding uh, in the cross both salvation and the way of life, you know, we said that, that the, the cross and the gospel is both proclamation, hearing about what God has done for us, but then giving us the pattern for life, which these people should be doing. They should be seeing that, that uh, you know, Christ's work upon the cross has saved us, but, and then also gives us the pattern for our conduct, that we should face it in obedience as Christ did. We should suffer well as he did. We, you know, all of those things, all the mindset that goes with the gospel that we've talked about. These people, they don't find uh, salvation in the cross and they don't find their way of life in the cross, but they find their sol- themselves on a path that leads only to destruction. That's what he begins with. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so Paul's readers have to make a choice. You know, we have to make a choice. Either we will follow the enemies of the cross by setting our mind upon earthly things, which in turn is uh, inward things, self-centered things, which we said are, you know, they end up being unfulfilling. You can fill it up, fill it up, fill it up, and then it's, you're just like, what was the point of that? I still need more. I'm not fulfilled. Unhappy. Or... We can follow Christ by having the same attitude of mind that Christ had, as he calls us to in uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Now, Paul tells us the end result of what happens for those who have this correct attitude of mind in verse 20. We know for those who are enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. But now we see for those who have this mindset in verse 20, they expect Christ's ultimate victory. In verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, we're we're citizens of a different place. Uh, He's using this word for specific reasons. He's telling us that that we are uh, under the authority of a government, that we're under the authority of another power, um, and, and he's highlighting it by telling us our citizenship is in heaven. Our governing power, our authority is in heaven. And Paul uses this idea of citizenship to convey that we are citizens of a heavenly colony here uh, upon the earth. We are members of this city, but we are a colony upon the earth, the church by and large. Now, he uses this specifically to remind the Philippians of this, Because, remember he's just said, those who are enemies of the cross, they have their mindset upon earthly things. But our citizenship 
is in heaven. So he's saying, get your mind right, get your game tight. Here's what's going to happen. Our citizenship is in heaven. So he's communicating that. But the other reason that he's communicating that is because uh, the Philippians lived within a Roman colony. Uh, Caesar Augustus gave Philippi all rights and privileges of being governed under Roman government. They had uh, the same footing as any city that was uh, a part of the Roman Empire. Uh, any of uh, any cities that were in Italy, Philippi had the same rights and privileges because they were declared a colony of Rome. And so Paul says, don't give in to this superpower that's ruling the earth right now. Don't give in to the earthly things just because it seems overwhelming and you're a part of this. Your citizenship, you're under another authority. You're in, you, your power uh, comes from another place. Get your mind right. So he tells us our citizenship is in heaven. And then he goes on and says, from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul uses uh, this title that would mean something significant to him. Uh, as a lifelong Jew, his conviction would be that God alone is Savior and Lord. Now, he, he quotes uh, his, uh, his title there, uh, we await a Savior, comma, the Lord Jesus Christ, is rooted in Isaiah 45, uh, verse 15 and verses 21 through 23. Isaiah 45, verse 15 and uh, verses 21 through 23. Uh, Isaiah writes this, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Right? Paul's already kind of used this. Uh, earlier in chapter 2, portions of this. But this text expresses that lifelong allegiance, that, uh, that conviction that Paul would feel using these terms, the Lord, uh, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these things mean something pretty heavily to Paul in applying those to Jesus, but they mean also, more than that, even within the context of Paul's readers. In the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus was, was called the Savior of the world. That was, that was a title that was attributed to him. Savior of the world because he restored order and peace, not only in Italy, but also throughout the provinces and regions under his sovereign rule. So anywhere that Caesar would go, there would be peace and order because of his presence there. And so Paul here is explicitly speaking of Jesus in this language which echoes and is subversive to this Roman Empire. He's using language that would be commonly used among uh, the people in that city. They would describe Caesar in this way. And so Paul's using this to say, we're not citizens of this place. We're a colony here, 
but we're citizens of heaven. And we await the arrival of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will come and bring uh, peace, the one who will restore order to us in his presence. Paul is telling us that Jesus is the only and true Savior of the world who will restore order and bring peace to all who submit to his rule. If you want that empty feeling to go away, if you want that unfulfillment to go away where you're trying to fill yourself up again and again and you're self-centered, if you submit to the rule of Christ, he will ultimately bring that peace. He will ultimately bring restoration to your brokenness. And so in contrast to the enemies of Christ who set their mind upon earthly powers, the Christians in Philippi, they are called to focus, focus upon and trust in, in Jesus as their Lord and Savior above all earthly powers. Now finishing up in verse 21, Paul uh, describes his arrival. He says uh, of Christ, uh, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glory body. He will change it from lowly to glorious. Now, Paul's hope here is not to, um, not to be rid of his body, but to have his body transformed. At the resurrection of Christ, creation is restored. Christ's, Christ's resurrection brings about recreation, resurrection. It's not simply that everything is going to get dashed and, you know, a whole slate will be clean, but everything is made new. It's restored. Uh, th there's restoration brought about by the work of Christ, including the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies will be changed. They'll be transformed, not discarded, right? Jesus, when, uh, when he was crucified, he was he was dead. He was placed into the tomb for three days. And then on the third day, Romans tells us he was raised for our justification. He was resurrected in a new body that was patterned after the old, but it was equipped for heaven, right? So when he goes and he, uh, when he appears in the, in the upper room before the disciples, he's there. He cruises through the door without them opening it. And then he he shows his hands and his, his uh, side to Thomas, right? He looks the same. It's a little bit different, but it's, it's new, but it's similar. And then later we see him out and uh, he's walking upon the water there. And we see Jesus there waiting for the disciples too when, uh, when they come back on the, on, uh, from the the Sea of Galilee, they bring their boat to shore, and he's got fish for them, and he's like, let's eat. Boom. And he's like, eating. So we know some things about this resurrection body, and Paul describes some of these characteristics of the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if you want to flip over there, we will end there, so um, pop over. We will start in verse 44, and Paul reveals uh, some of the qualities here of this, of this resurrection body. He says it's a spiritual body. Given life and animated by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 44. He says it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So the first thing we know, it's a spiritual body. uh, And then secondly, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, we see that there's some contrast here. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, speaking of the natural body, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So the resurrection body is in contrast to corruptibility, dishonor, weakness of that natural body. The spiritual body is going to be incorruptible, glorious. It's going to be powerful. Uh, Lastly, in verse 45, we see that uh, the resurrection body will display the likeness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven and was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust and is the man of heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So, our body will display the likeness of the risen Christ uh, that we see there in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so we're going to have these, you know, as, as Paul communicates to us, that Christ will transform our lowly bodies to, from, being low, from, from being lowly to being glorious. And then he says that he's going to do it by the power that enables him even to be subject all things to himself. So Paul's language here. It, he wraps up with this, uh, with a little bit more subversive language, because Caesar again was the, the the emperor had absolute claim over the bodies of his subjects. He had to do whatever he says, you know. Hence, like gladiators and all that other crazy stuff. You were under his rule, and your body was subject to whatever he told you to do. And so, likewise, Paul says that Jesus. He is able to transform our bodies, those who trust in him. He will, he will do something that, that Caesar cannot do. When we are resurrected, we will have the same type of body that Jesus had himself when he was resurrected. And this is possible only because he is all-powerful. And he's able to subject all things to himself and accomplish this amazing transformation from lowly to glorious. It reminds us of the Christ hymn, right? He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, uh, God has exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, right? After this death, after this obedience, then there's resurrection and glorification. And that is, it's done by God, And that's what will happen here. Christ is able to subject all things to himself. He's all-powerful. It reminds me of uh, Colossians 1, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus as the first uh, among all creation, he says, For by him all things were created 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith, which I'm super thankful for because he knows exactly what's happening in between. So we can trust him there. So when, it's, when it comes down to being self-centered or Christ-centered, we can trust the one who has authored and finished our faith, the one who has lived this life, and we can go to him in time of need and, and look to him for direction and salvation, who will sustain us in, in, in every season of life because he is the joy that fulfills. He is the one who will ultimately satisfy our souls. And so this morning, Paul sets those choices before us. We walk as those with the mindset of uh, the attitude of Christ, or we walk as enemies of the cross. One leads to destruction, and the other leads to resurrection and glorification. And we walk that path, not alone, but together. Find a mentor, find a friend, find someone to disciple you create relationships so that way we can encourage one another in those times of need. We can point others to Jesus. So Paul's communicating with us, and, and I'm thankful for, uh, for his word and his experience as he has lived it out so faithfully. We can have confidence that Christ has sustained him, even in his you know, darkest hour facing execution, and Christ can sustain us and give us life uh, in the midst of our storms and trials. So let's pray and ask the Lord to work within us uh, and bring application, help us to, uh, to choose wisely, to be intentional and purposeful about how we uh, live this out. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness to us and that uh, in our time of need, Lord, you never let us go you never leave us nor forsake us, but you give us exactly what we need in the moment that we need it. We're thankful that we can trust you uh, with our lives, and we pray that you continue uh, to draw us to yourself. Lord, we want to be found uh, as those who have the mind of Christ, who walk faithfully uh, with you. Lord, we want to love and serve each other well by uh, discipling each other and pointing each other to Jesus. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you allow us to have that righteous desire um, to know you more in your death and resurrection. Lord, we want to count uh, all of our gains as losses. We want to count all things as loss for the sake of gaining you and knowing you. Lord, we know that our flesh is weak, but your spirit works within us to will and to do, and so we need your help. And would you help us to do that this morning, Lord? We want to demonstrate um, our desire to know you more. Lord, so cause us now to respond to that. Lord, cause us to respond faithfully to you uh, in worship as we reflect upon your faithfulness. We love you. Amen.